Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency in 2017. I'm Freddie Gray and I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm joined today by Quinn Meacham, who is a specialist in US policy in the Middle East. And we're going to be talking about Trump's first foreign trip and how it went. Quinn, from perhaps a superficial point of view, it looks as though Trump, after a very bad few weeks at home, domestically, he has had his first big foreign trip abroad, his first foreign trip abroad has been rather a big success. Is that a fair assessment? Well, that, of course, depends on how you define success. Uh, I think at one level, it has been tightly choreographed, mm. which his last couple of weeks at home have not been. Um, he has been to a lot of places. He's talked with a lot of important people. Um, no one is calling out really major faux pas, uh, which of course, uh, the president has been known to produce. And so in that sense, I I think it could be deemed successful in that, uh, he, the president appears happy with it. Um, he appears to, uh, have produced a trip that's, that's gone rather smoothly, just just a reminder, though, that this is the kind of trip that is planned months in advance. It's extremely carefully choreographed. Yes. It's quite hard to mess them up. Well, you know, for people who uh, like President Trump or are used to going off script a lot, it, it's possible to do so. Mm. I mean, he, he's meeting uh, a range of, uh, of leaders uh, in areas where he has little expertise and um, areas where he's been controversial. I mean, it, it's really quite audacious for him to fly to Saudi Arabia and to address uh, leaders in the Islamic world on the topic of Islam when, yes. you know, he, he's been quite anti-Islam in his campaign rhetoric. Um, you know, wading into Israeli-Palestinian peace uh, is very tricky. It's a minefield in terms of symbolism and in terms of, uh, you know, what's possible uh, and not. And so in, in that sense, you know, this is kind of an audacious trip um, where there have been potential minefields, but um, it's gone comparatively smoothly. If we take the Pope visit out, which which really does seem to be more of a photo shoot than anything else, could you call it the anti-Iran tour in that in Saudi Arabia, he delivered a sort of clear message on Iran and with the Israelis, Netanyahu thanked him for his change of tone, his, his upping in the aggression towards Iran. Would that be a fair characterization of what was going on in that trip? Uh, certainly not the entire trip, but for a couple of days there, I think he did stay on message, um, being very anti-Iranian. Mm. Um, it, it, it's a tricky time to do that, uh, in part because uh, Iran just had presidential elections. Um, it you know, overwhelmed the Iranian population overwhelmingly uh, re-elected uh, the most moderate candidate on the ballot. Yes, and so the fact that he is raising a wide variety of, of autocrats at the same time as criticizing Iran, which is in the process of this democratic um, election, I think is, uh, is an interesting moment. But yes, indeed, he uh, has tried to stay very closely on message uh, that's been very appealing to the Sunni Arabs that he's been working with. And, and that really goes back to sort of Bush era foreign policy, doesn't it? I mean, it's Obama that broke with the Sunni US alliance. Well, the U.S.-Iranian uh, uh, tension, of course, has been deep uh, and sustained for many mm. decades. There was this, the revolution of 1979. Yeah. So the the fact that Obama and President Rouhani in Iran uh, engaged in a series of, of dialogues um, leading to a negotiated settlement on the on the nuclear deal 
was out of step with traditional American policy, that's for sure. Uh, the the other issue that Obama faced uh, beginning in 2011 was this series of uprisings against Sunni Arab autocrats. And mm. in the process of that, uh, the United States left behind some of its traditional alliances with President Mubarak of Egypt, for example. Mm. Uh, in some ways, Trump is returning to uh, more comfort with those leaders, yeah. And of course, huge arms deals. I mean, signed a great big whopping arms deal with Saudi Arabia, which we know he likes to do. And Jared Kushner seems to like involving himself in those deals. Uh, very much so, right? Uh, the American president thinks of himself foremost as a deal maker. Mm. And uh, those deals are usually spoken of in uh, in monetary terms. So uh, this was a deal that was in the interest of Saudi Arabia, uh, at least superficially, because uh, it does see the United States and the arms that the United States provides as critical in its balancing against Iran and Iranian influence in the Middle East. Um, this was good for uh, President Trump because it looks quite lucrative for American defense companies. Mm. It's you know it is also kind of a tricky time. Uh, to sign such a deal because um, the Saudis have been using the weapons that the U.S. and others have supplied uh, in a sustained, uh, you know, bombing campaign um, that is devastating the country of Yemen. Mm. And um, this is something that, you know, human rights campaigners and others are are yelling and kicking and screaming about. Uh, Yemen is likely to be the largest concern uh, in the world with regard to famine this year. Uh, 14 million people are, are at risk of, of famine, uh, and it also has a, a cholera outbreak. So the, the fact that these arms are likely to be used in places like Yemen, I think is controversial, but uh, certainly not controversial on the Saudi side or for this American president. But it, it's interesting, isn't it, that, I mean, Yemen, well, in many ways, a greater humanitarian, I mean, not quite yet, but it's on a par with Syria as a humanitarian crisis. You say there's a great outcry, and it's true that charities are making a lot of noise about it, but it doesn't seem to cut through the media. Why Why don't you think that is? Well, in part because there are so few journalists on the ground covering it. I mean, it's an extremely difficult place to do journalism. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's also complex. It hasn't been on uh, the radar screen in the same way that um, Syria has. It doesn't have a key bad guy, you know, in the form of, of President Assad. It doesn't have... But Syria is uh, pretty it, complex too. I mean, Syria is enormously complex. Um, I agree with that. Uh, I just think that we've had a much longer ramp up in, ter- in the media uh, yeah. to try to get our minds around Syria. I, I think very few consumers of media understand exactly what's going on, but uh, they, they understand the fact that we have uh, millions of refugees that have fled Syria, that have impacted Europe, um, the, those that have fled Yemen haven't had a chance to make it to Europe because uh, they are largely penned in by the, the northern border with Saudi Arabia or, you know, by uh, the Gulf of Aden. And, you know, they might make it to the Horn of Africa, which just doesn't register uh, in the media. Yeah. Before Trump was elected president or before he took office, there's quite a lot of optimism that he would actually be among people who don't like wars, that he would be quite an effective president abroad because of his his obsession with realism or his his stress on realism in his foreign policy speeches. He brought that up again in Saudi Arabia. Do you think he's right on that? Well, he did market himself in the campaign um, as a non-interventionist. That appealed to many of of his supporters. 
he also, uh, you know, has branded himself as an America first president, um, which many have interpreted to mean that he's not going to get involved in entangling alliances and, mm. and other things that may not fully be in America's interests or may lead America into a sustained conflict. Mm. It's been, it's been harder for him, I think, than he thought to avoid getting involved. Um, uh, in part because uh, he really does like the idea of being able to flex American military muscle. Uh, I, I think there are lots of indications that he sees that as a positive thing. He tends to like to drop American military inter inter uh, information in conversations he has with world leaders, um, to much yes. to the dismay of the intelligence community and the military community in the U.S. Yes. So the, 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 for him, I think part of that America first, make America great has a military component to it. Um, and therefore, uh, when he sees value in using American military might against things that he deeply cares about, which are things like terrorism, for example, uh, he's actually been flexing, um, you know, his options uh, more so than Obama in many cases. Uh, he's, he's been very active in the use of drone strikes much more than Obama. He's been very active in the use of special forces operations in different parts of the Middle East much more than Obama. So it's the sort of opposite of, of what the non-interventionists expected in, the, in that he's finding it very difficult to make America great again at home, but he does find it easy to flex American muscle abroad. Yeah, in some ways, you know, uh, that is an easier call for him to make, right? And it, it also... Uh, helps to distract, I think, a little bit from some of his challenges at home. But one of the messages of the broader trip for me, right, um, is that I think Trump is is actually having a great time. Um, yeah. I, I think that, you know, it, it's hard to measure the success of this trip because I don't think that American foreign policy is clearly delineated. Mm. And therefore, you know, has the trip done anything to further American foreign policy interests? I think that's a very difficult question to answer because we don't know what exactly that foreign policy is. Mm. But one, one thing that I think is quite positive about this trip is that he is receiving a lot of counsel in some ways and, and guidance. Uh, he's also sharing some of his own in mm. his forceful way. But he's being forced to engage in dialogues on a range of issues, international issues, that I think he wasn't particularly equipped for prior to the preparation for this trip. And as a result, I think he's coming out of this viewing the world as a little bit more complex, um, getting you know a, a little bit more excited about engaging in, in the world, uh, yeah. in part because I think he understands it a little bit better and he feels like he has friends. I mean, one, one thing that has gone really well on this trip uh, from Trump's perspective is that his hosts have been enormously gracious. They've been flattering. Uh, the Saudis went over the top on this, but uh, almost inevitably, uh, he has felt like uh, people are, are really interested and willing to engage with him. And I think given his personality, which, which enjoys that, uh, enjoys that, yeah. that focus and attention, um, I think that he will probably have ideas that are sparked by this trip. Uh, he will probably... Uh, feel a little bit more comfortable in, in uh, international relations and probably engage in it a bit more. So th this idea of realism and, and what he called in, in this Saudi speech in Riyadh, what he called uh, principled realism, mm. I think essentially for him at this stage in his presidency means we're not going to be that ideological. We're going to make deals when deals seem to be uh, needed to be made uh, when they seem to be in the interests of both parties. Mm. We are not going to worry too much about uh, 
human rights issues. We're not going to worry too much about uh, democracy. We're not going to worry about you know what some people would package as a set of American or European or Western values, because we're really interested at the end of the day in forging alliances to yeah. accomplish very specific goals, including elimination of terrorism, uh, including uh, specific economic and trade deals and so forth. But the principal bit would be chemical weapons, as, as he's shown in Syria. He, he will draw the red line or, or whatever, uh, however he wants to portray it. I think there's some evidence that, that he chose to use uh, missile attacks uh, after the chemical weapons uh, attack in Syria, in part because he was motivated by empathy or principle. Mm. Now, that's a little bit puzzling, and it was, it was surprising for, for many people at the time because it seemed to go against many of his previous um, preferences. But uh, it's a little bit surprising because in other areas, he seems to be really kind of deaf or even blind to suffering, right, uh, mm. in cases where uh, it doesn't seem to be relevant for his policy. But in that particular case, it seemed to resonate with him. So I think, you know, in, in Trump's mind, there are principles that matter. Mm. Um, and uh, what those principles are is going to be uh, a bit of a case-by-case -case discussion. And I think that creates some uncertainty about what America will do when um, and how it will impact Europe and other places. I, you know, one of the, the broader themes of this trip is Europeans are really trying to get their mind around uh, what does America want or believe about Europe? Um, what is it's going? What's what will its position in NATO be? Well, yes, and there's a big NATO summit going on right now. That right, there'll be a lot of discussion about that. And, and uh, President Trump did, you know, uh, use his remarks at that summit to to really call for participants in NATO to to pay uh, a broader share of their national budgets in, into NATO, which has yeah. been consistent with his 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 preferences. Uh, but, you know, he's made so many turns, including on NATO, um, where he now sees that NATO has a potentially important role to play. It would not surprise me at all if he leaves this NATO summit thinking that the United States has a really important role to play in NATO and therefore that he's willing to you know, step up and, and try to provide more leadership within that body rather than leaving it. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me either if, if he leaves you know, uh, thinking, you know, there's some potential in the EU, <laughs> even though he's been, you know, very fond of uh, of the British exit negotiations yes. on the yes. EU. I think we, we were rather too wooed by his enthusiasm early on. Yeah, and I, I think uh, some of that enthusiasm certainly will, will, will stay. But, I, you know, I, I think this is an individual who is in the process of, uh, of learning um, and also of recalibrating uh, as he goes through this foreign trip. So, uh, you know, a, 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 a little while ago, uh, when he was uh, threatening to leave the North American Free Trade Agreement with Canada and Mexico, mm. um, he was called on the phone by um, the leaders of Canada and Mexico who urged and tried to persuade him uh, not to leave NAFTA. And he reported after that conversation that, you know, the, the, those kind of calls really changed his mind mm. and that he is now uh, he thinks it needs to be renegotiated. But it, it, he's now more willing uh, than before to try to make that work. And so 
those kinds of conversations have been shown to be influential on him. And I suspect that you know, some of the conversations he's had in this trip have also been influential. There's a theory, isn't there, that Trump, that's how Trump strikes a deal. So he will say, I'm going to pull out of NAFTA and sort of frighten the other party into some sort of compromise, which you know they did over lumber taxes or something like that. And it, in, in its small way, it's an effective way of, of striking a deal. Do you think that's a, a good theory? Do you think that's true? I do think we have lots of evidence to say that that the first position that he plays in any negotiation, and he really does think about these kinds of relationships as as ongoing negotiations. Yes, that he really does play a very aggressive hand, um, without the expectation that that will be the hand that is ultimately agreed upon at the end of the day. So this yeah. is occurring right now in, in uh, the U.S. budget negotiations, where Trump's budget comes out swinging. It's a budget that no one in Congress, even in the Republican-dominated Congress, believes is viable. Mm. But nevertheless, it becomes a little bit of an anchor or focal point around which discussions can occur. And so I think that he has, in his business life, had a lot of success with this this particular strategy mm. and uh, continues in many ways to use it. And so we, we have a lot of evidence from how Trump does shift his positions to to. Uh, believe that he is indeed more flexible on many of his positions than he might articulate. Lastly, it sounds to me as though you think it's not impossible that Trump could be an effective president on the world stage. Is that right? I think that he has a lot of disadvantages in being effective on the world stage. He has a couple of advantages. So I, I think one is that, you know, it's a double-edged sword, that he is unpredictable and um, much of the world... Uh, both in investment terms and in diplomatic terms, thrives on a measure of predictability. So mm. in, in that way, I think that he doesn't help support the international system very well and is, is a disruptive force. Um, on the other hand, that disruptive force, I think, has the potential to make progress in areas that have become stalemated over time. Uh, simply because they, uh, the narratives have become so common, the positions have become so predictable, the interests have been so transparent. And to the extent that he leverages some of that unpredictability or you know, uh, the ability to be persuaded um, on particular issues and to assert a lot, right? He's, he's a much better asserter than he is a listener. Mm. Um, in, in those kinds of situations, I think that he has the potential to kind of mix up the, the possibilities uh, around how we choose to engage and solve international problems. And therefore, it wouldn't surprise me if there were a, a few of those areas where his influence is actually spurs uh, a changing of assumptions, it spurs some creativity, um, it spurs... Um, some, some renewed momentum in areas that have been troublesome. Mm. I, I don't want to overplay that because I do think that his potential um, to be damaging in terms of long-term alliances, long-term relationships, principled values, uh, norms in the international community, I think uh, his, his potential to be damaging in those areas is still very high. Yes, a mixed report then. Quinn, thank you very much for talking to us. Hey, my pleasure, Fred. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast anytime on iTunes. So please do and have a very nice weekend. <laughs>